Well, welcome back to the world of shared language and innumerable meanings. So for those of you who are just joining, I am Fu Schrader from the San Francisco Zen Center, and I'm a guest of Gil Fronsdale, who along with Paul Haller and myself are offering a three-week intensive called the Harmony of Zen and Vipassana. So this morning is the second day of our week-long study of the teachings the Buddha gave on right conduct, Shila. And to begin, I'm going to share with you a teaching story from the Pali Canon about the source of what is called the Bodhisattva vow, or the vow to live for the benefit of all beings. So this vow underlies not only the tradition that we endeavor to practice here at Green Gulch Farm, where I'm sitting right now, but wherever humans are conducting their lives for the benefit of others, as I know so many of you are doing right now on the front lines of this pandemic, for which all of us are deeply grateful. So here's a story about a yogi <clears throat> named Sumedha that illustrates the origins of the Bodhisattva vow. And please keep in mind that it's just a story. <clears throat> Countless eons ago in a city called Amaravati, there lived a Brahmin named Sumedha, a son of good family. When Sumedha was still quite young, his parents died, and the minister of the state showed Sumedha the wealth accumulated for seven generations that he now had inherited from his parents. The family treasury was filled to overflowing with gold, silver, gems, pearls, and other valuables. When Sumedha saw the treasure, he thought, after amassing all this wealth, none of my ancestors were able to take even one penny with them when they passed away. Can it be right that I should seek to take my wealth with me to the end of my days? And then he told the minister of state to give all of this wealth to the poor. <clears throat> when he saw how a life of transmigrating within samsara the cycle of birth, sickness, aging, and dying, moment after moment, was suffering. He wanted to find the path of deliverance that would lead to extinction, to no more rebirth. So he left home and entered a forest in the Himalayas to practice as a hermit. Because he was a person of great integrity, over time he attained superhuman knowledge and supernatural powers. One day, Dipangara Buddha, appeared in the world and began to teach. To prepare for the Buddha's arrival, the people of the town began to fix the road, which had flooded, and to decorate it with flowers. Sumedha, who lived near, heard of the Buddha's visit and flew to the town, offering to help with preparations. The people were so excited because they knew that Sumedha could fix the road with his supernatural powers just in time for Dipankara Buddha's arrival. But Sumedha wanted to do so with his own hands, and so he started to carry the soil by hand. Unfortunately, Dipangara Buddha and his assembly arrived before his work was done. Sumedha did not want the Buddha to walk through the mud, so he loosened his matted hair, lay down on the ground, and with outstretched hands asked the Buddha to walk on him. While lying there in the mud, Sumedha looked up at Dipangara Buddha, and he thought to himself, if I wanted, I could now enter the Buddha Sangha and free myself from deluded states of human desire becoming an arhat, and then at death, I would at once attain nirvana and cease to be reborn. 
but this would be a benefit to myself alone. I want to help all beings as Deepangara Buddha is doing right now, and I am determined. And then he made a vow. I vow to attain what Deepangara Buddha has attained, Anyutara Samyaksambodhi, the complete perfect enlightenment of a Buddha for the benefit of all beings. When Deepangara Buddha saw Sumedha lying in the mud, he understood that the young man had vowed to become a Buddha. So he told his assembly that in the distant future, Sumedha would indeed become a Buddha named Shakyamuni. Hearing this prediction, Sumedha was overjoyed, believing that his vow would be realized. And thus Sumedha became a Bodhisattva, meaning a Buddha to be, vowing to remain in the realms of suffering until all beings had been saved. So this is our inheritance as well, you know, all of us, as a gift from Sumedha and our own Buddha, Shakyamuni Buddha, who came here to this earth looking for suffering beings that might be saved, which in Buddha's world means to be awakened. So this vow to live for others is the true heart of our human life. Whether we know it or not, say it or not, believe it or not, still some part of our mind turns towards this thought of awakening, the bodhicitta, the thought of enlightenment. And some part of our body turns toward the image of an awakened being, <clears throat> toward the possibility of becoming an awakened being ourselves. And so we sit like a Buddha. We study the Buddha's teaching and we endeavor to act like Buddha over and over and over again. And then on the morning of his awakening, what Shakyamuni Buddha saw was his own miraculous face appearing as the morning star, as the branches of an overhanging tree, the Bodhi tree, as a lovely young woman carrying water in a jar on her head, as bees and flowers, as grass and flowing water, just as we're all seeing right now. And for the first time in his many lives, he knew he wasn't separate from the world. He knew he wasn't alone. There was nothing outside of himself. So what the Buddha then recommended to his many disciples was an opposite world where each of us is devoted ourselves to the welfare of someone else or maybe to everyone else. In his search for liberation from suffering, the young prince had undermined his own self-concern, self-love, self-conceit, and ignorance, a radical act that diverted the flow of his ambition away from accumulating more cargo, more wealth, to preserving the precious resources of this life-giving planet for everyone and everything that depends on it. So when we take this vow to live for others, much like in a marriage, it's done before witnesses, you know, our family, our friends, our community, and for a brief moment, moment or two, we see into the heart of creation itself, herself, himself, into the great wholeness of being, our own true body and our own true life. So basically the precepts are like a trellis to hold ourselves up as we undertake this very same journey, lifetime after lifetime, moment after moment need be, that led to the awakening of a young prince. Turning toward the thought of awakening is a natural thing for us to want something that sounds so wonderful, you know, like enlightenment. Although wanting something for ourselves alone is perhaps the very thing that blocks our way. 
fortunately, we really have no other choice but to start from where we are. And most often, if not always, we will find that we are starting from selfishness, one of the four defiled ways of thinking that block our view of Buddhahood. These four are called the klishtamanas. Klishtamanas, sounds like it. Defiled thinking. The first is ignorance, which along with desire is the cause of human suffering. The next is the belief in a self, a separate self. The third is the conceit about that self. And the fourth is the love for that self above all else. Basic narcissism. And yet right there is our first opportunity for a taste of liberation by studying the self that we believe that we are and then by telling the truth about what we see. I see that I am selfish. Already in that recognition and acknowledgement, the precepts suddenly appear, beginning with what, from my point of view, is the most important precept of them all. A disciple of Buddha does not lie, not to oneself and not to others. And that very truth will set us free. Which reminds me of another amazing story, also from the Pali Canon, about the power of telling the truth. Excuse me. A young boy is bitten by a poisonous snake. The distraught parents stop a passing monk and ask him to use his medical knowledge to save the child. The monk replies that the situation is so grave that the only possible cure would be emphatic statements of truth. The father then says, I have never seen a monk that I did not think was a scoundrel. May the boy live. Without the poison left the boy's leg. The mother then said, I have never loved my husband. May the boy live. The poison retreated to the boy's waist. The monk then said, I have never believed a word of the Dharma, but found it utter nonsense. May the boy live. And with that, the boy rose completely cured. Such is the power of the truth. So telling the truth, also called the practices of confession and repentance in the Buddhist tradition, is intimately connected to the bodhisattva vow. There are two sides of one practice or one coin. And that's because our vow of saving all beings is endless and therefore will never be complete. You know, we just can't do it. Our awareness of the incompleteness is in itself a kind of repentance, you know, as in I am so sorry, but I just cannot finish this job. Even the Buddha said this very thing when he could no longer stay in his painful human body. Gotta go. I think you've all seen the Enso that Zen masters draw as a demonstration demonstration of both their unique personalities, but also of their understanding of this universal truth of incompleteness. The circle will never be closed. This truth is the same for all who undertake the bodhisattva vow and practice. And at the same time that our task is unachievable, it's also important to reflect honestly on our personal shortcomings as part of entry into a life that's devoted to vow. Such reflection sets up a resonance between the enormous task and ourselves as limited beings endeavoring to undertake it. You know, it's it's harmonics. Shantideva, the eighth century Indian Buddhist monk and scholar and an adherent of the middle way philosophy with its 
primary focus on the emptiness teaching said, one law serves to summarize the whole of the great vehicle. The protection of all beings is accomplished through the examination of one's own mistakes. This kind of honest self-reflection helps to motivate us and to inspire us to continue finding our way. Oftentimes we back away from looking at our mistakes and instead we lead with a string of justifications, you know, stories, good stories. I've always appreciated the practice of the Zen Center when one of us misses a bell or we're late or do some other unskillful things. We simply bow and apologize without bringing in a lot, lot of extra information, you know, better known as excuses. It's also part of the Mahayana tradition when entering into a relationship with Dharma practice and in particular with the Bodhisattva vow to acknowledge not only the impossibility of completing our mission and our current mistakes, but also our previous mistakes, our previous way of life, our selfish life in which, from which we are in recovery. So which is exactly why we chant every morning during service following our meditation. <clears throat> All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow, meaning I now fully accept. I did it and I am very sorry. So being conscious of our errors and being concerned about the effect our behavior has on others is essential to our life together in community, both locally and globally, as we hippies used to say, you know, think globally, act locally. In a citation to a sutta, Bhikshu Thanissaro tells us, Throughout ancient cultures, the terminology of music was used to describe the moral qualities of people and of actions. Discordant intervals and poorly tuned instruments were metaphors for doing harm. Harmonious intervals and well-tuned instruments were metaphors for doing good. In Pali, the term sama, even, meaning even, sama, describes an instrument that is tuned on pitch. So this term samana, meaning a monk or a contemplative, also derives from this same word, sama, evenness, referring to the greatly admired characteristics of those human beings who have developed in themselves the quality of being in tune with what is proper and good, and most importantly, for everyone around them. So tomorrow morning, I will be talking about the verses known as the three refuges that we recite also each morning following meditation. Buddham saranam gachami, dharmam saranam gachami, sangam saranam gachami. I take refuge in Buddha. I take refuge in Dharma. I take refuge in Sangha. The three refuges, also known as the triple treasure, are the first three of the 16 bodhisattva precepts. Without the Buddha, his teachings, the Dharma, without the people who came to study with him, the Sangha, there would be no Buddhism, and which is kind of obvious. Less obvious, perhaps, is that none of us would be here this morning to talk about it. There would be no us, no it, no way of life. So taking refuge in the triple treasure, as Suzuki Roshi said, means that you adore the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, and that for you, taking refuge is an act of adoration. So before declaring our adoration to the triple treasure, it might be a good idea to consider just what each of those refuges means to you. And that's what I'm going to talk about tomorrow. 
So thank you all for your kind attention. Please take care and stay safe.